You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Están escuchando el programa, el podcast de música clásica que se traduciría a muy buen musical classical podcast. Realmente no hay una traducción definida, pero es más o menos eso. I have absolutely no idea what you're <laughs> And you see how, how much longer it took. <laughs> yeah. My God, you have a lot of words. This is what you need to know about thoroughly good classical music podcastee, pianist and composer, Gabriela Montero. We met late last year in my new local, a cafe called Bread Ahead, in which customers drinking in navigate away from the imposing faux throne that dominates the quiet area at the back of the establishment. Gabriella is currently working with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, has already performed one concert late last year and will perform one uh, on the 26th of February 2020 in a recital of solo works, one of which includes a piece entitled Improvisations. Gabriella is also big on improvisation, as you will hear in this interview, a kind of musical performance she describes as a moment in time when she shuts down and gets out of the way. And she's also someone who connects her art with her passion and in so doing brings focus and context to both. She is an amazing woman and I loved every single minute of this interview and listening to it back in what has been a very difficult week has brought me an enormous amount of joy. Piece of pineapple and a glass of water with lemon, no cinnamon rolls, and what else did I have? A salad, and um, yeah, mm-hmm. no <laughs> pineapple. You had pineapple and lemon water. I'm only kidding. Oh, is it? Oh, no, uh, this no, is all I made mean, up. It's all made oh. up. I, I had a little bit of eggs with halloumi something, right. coffee, and now we did a sample testing of cinnamon rolls. and. Right. Uh, there was no clear winner, though. Oh, mm. that, how very convenient. I mean, yes, it's a bad start to the week. Um, yes. What is it about cinnamon rolls mm. you, that you get? Because you, you've talked extensively this morning about cinnamon rolls. What is it that excites you about them? I find the layering fascinating, actually. And then you get to the inside, and there's usually not much, which is disappointing. So it's a, it's a kind of a futile exercise in the end. Do you, do you bake? Have you tried no, making? No, no, I, I don't have time. I mean, really, between learning a Prokofiev sonata and baking, I mean, which one would you choose? <laughs> baking, baking. I'll just listen to the Prokofiev sonata. Yeah, you see, sonata. You're, you're smarter. You uh, what do you do when you're not playing the piano? What do you do to relax? What is relax? I don't know what relaxing is anymore. I mean, when I'm not concertizing... Hopefully I'm composing. When I'm not composing, um, I'm being a human rights activist for Venezuela. I'm helping people. I'm literally getting people out of Venezuela. Sometimes they live in our house. Um, dealing with all of that. And I'm also a mother, so I have two girls. And, uh, well, all the complexities of the female psyche and all of that. And, um, and I also have a husband, so I try to be a normal girl let's say but it it doesn't quite happen like that i'm just always busy how did you get into human rights Hmm. activism where does that stem from it stems from the total collapse of my country of venezuela stems from 20 years of, of devastation in every way of 
our country physically, moral, morally, economically, uh, emotionally. And um, I've had to learn a lot about politics and a lot about how the world works and how this happened to Venezuela because it happened to us. And sometimes when it happens to you, then you begin to understand, you begin to care, and you begin, you begin to become active like I have. So my human rights activism has been directly correlated to the suffering, the pain, the misery, the exile that I have seen around me and that I have also experienced myself. So, What happened to you? What happened to me? Well, my gosh, I mean, first of all, I never expected to be someone who so vocally spoke about matters that are so dark and that are so difficult to imagine that human beings would put themselves through or put others through. Um, I've had to become very instrued in conversations about narco-mafias, about um, corruption, about you know what happened in 1999 when Chavez came into power and what's uh, been the result of 20 years of um, not governing but rather um, creating mafia structures because that's what it is in Venezuela. Um, and what happened to me? Well, I can't return to my country. I haven't been there in almost 10 years. And I never spent more than six months or a year without returning home. Uh, my family is spread all around the world. We barely see each other. I had to get my brother out with his family about five years ago, which implied huge sacrifices for him and for us, for me and my, and my husband. I've watched... Um, huge amounts of pain and fracturing in families and uh, trying to do everything I can to help whether it's financially or it's just sending a word of support or just actually representing Venezuelans around the world and telling the story through the press of what's happened the real story of what happened to Venezuela and it's been very hard because um, you have to go up against a myth and a very well-financed, um, almost marketing chip of, of the story they've wanted to tell versus the facts and the evidence that is now uh, for everyone to see of what happened to Venezuela. So um, I've had to be a voice for all of these people who don't have a voice, get involved in matters that... I never thought I would ever be involved in, but I feel that as an artist, it's my responsibility to do so. How do you balance what feels, when I hear that, mm -hmm. as something really quite weighty and quite heavy? Mm -hmm. You carry it with uh, an enormous sense of responsibility, I can tell, by the yeah. way you talk about it. But how do you balance that with your music making, or is your music making an escape? No, it's, it's directly affected and coloured Everything I do musically. I mean, who I am as an artist today is not the same, or as a human being, it's not the same as I was 10 years ago before I began to actively uh, protest through my music as well as through my word um, what's happened to Venezuela. Um, in my concerts, I have been now for 10 years improvising about what Venezuelans feel like, and um, I find music to be a very direct vehicle to helping people understand that we are all 
connected, whether we are from different continents or different cultures. What happens in Venezuela could very well happen here. And on an emotional level, I want to connect these two places so that people understand what we suffer. And even though it's far removed from, you know, what you can experience in, in uh, developed societies like this one. And um, I, just, I just feel that everything I've done musically from improvising, one improvisation in my recitals about Venezuela, to writing Expatria, which is a, a, a document, a, a musical document of the destruction of Venezuela, the chaos, the corruption, the pain, the... The, the ripping apart of, of a whole nation to then writing the Latin concerto which is not about Venezuela but it's also a comment on that beauty and that richness that we have as Latin Americans and what people know us for, the humor the sensuality, the dancing all of that, but beneath that there are these dark forces there's, there's these um, sabotages that unfortunately don't allow us to, to become who we should be and to reach our full potential. third movement of the Latin Concerto on my way in this morning and I heard it as uh, at the beginning light rhythmic enticing joyful and then it shifted into something slightly destructive um, still very pleasing there's a, there's a, a sort of a bittersweet thing about yeah. that mm, yeah. uh, but that's what I hear musically, that was a deliberate act on your part absolutely is called Allegro Venezolano so there is a very famous uh, theme uh, called El Pajarillo which I quote lightly in the third movement but all Venezuelans will recognize it and the movement starts in kind of a naive dancing way and slowly as you very well you know detected uh, we get into this this black dance this kind of dance macabre you know and uh, it's very much, again, about those undercurrents of, of corruption and darkness and, 
and uh, the more primitive elements of who we are as human beings and unfortunately end up usurping the whole society and everything that we do and everything that and actually preventing us from being who we could be if it wasn't for this. It's it's a it's it's a process. It's um it's mm, I don't see a resolution for now. Maybe that's maybe that's a very interesting observation because I I hadn't quite consciously done it like that. But I just in myself I don't see a resolution, uh, and I'm quite concerned actually. So so perhaps the concerto just kind of it just kind of drops with this very high impact ending. But that's it. You're right. There is, there is no answer. I, I have not found any answers. Uh, how did you go about writing it? <laughs> Very much like my improvisation process, because that's who I am. Um, whenever I had the time between concerts, because that's the struggle, you know, when you're a concert pianist, kind of what happened to Rachmaninoff, you know, he was always on the road, so it was hard for him to find time to, to compose. I'm kind of in the same dilemma where I'm, I have, you know, this concert career, but I really want to sit down and write more, um, especially in this phase of my life. And... Um, I sit down and I improvise large chunks of it and then I if I want I reorganize I change that's the benefit of having time you know whereas with improv it's just what it is in that moment but it's very much a large sweeping improvisation process because I'm not the kind of person to notate and and build little by little it just kind of comes in a in a big you know I know, creative flow moment. I am, I mean, I've seen you improvise, and obviously mm. I've seen other people improvise. I find the, as a musician myself, mm. 
I find the improvisation process terrifying mm. because there's no written score. There's no... Mm-hmm. You have to know everything. I mean, it strikes me no. that you have to know everything. No, you don't have to. be able to. to hear loads of different styles and be able to conjure that up in the moment. You have to be in the moment. Yes. I mean, I realise that all... all you don't have to know everything. In fact, I know nothing. I mean, it's not about that. It's... I never studied harmony or theory or solfege. Or I can't even analyze my own improvisations. And that's the freedom of it, because I, there is nothing. <laughs> you, might <Okay>. say. <laughs> you didn't study harmony. No. Wow. Nothing. So I'm judging you now. <laughs> I know you are. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> I'm very offended. <laughs> no. Oh, well. <laughs> no, I, I, I love to to say that and I know it's quite shocking and it's kind of a heretic in a way but I love to say that because I do believe that music comes from a a different sort of intelligence a a more subconscious maybe um, in my case I know it comes from a different part of my brain but um, I don't improvisation should be about there being nothing that's the whole point I mean there is supposed to be nothing isn't that what improvisation it's not about repeating patterns it's about tapping into something that just creates itself uh, but there must be a different mindset mm. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the, the possibility of a different mindset in that when you play improvisation mm. when you improvise there can never be the same thing again exactly you can never hear that again unless you've recorded it exactly and that requires or that will result in a different mindset well, I mean, I guess this this links really nicely to um, this question to to this brain study that I've I had done like three years ago at the John Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Charles Lim, who's a leading neurologist, and you know he's done several TED talks, and he's a brilliant guy, brilliant guy. Um, so basically, my my husband, who's a musician, uh, he's a baritone, and uh, he called Dr. Lim up one day and said, "My wife is kind of strange. Um, I'd like to bring her to you so Max you can." Line. <laughs> no, no, really? no. Okay. no, no, no. Because he, because Sam has seen me improvise thousands of times, and he knows that there's nothing planned; that it just happens in the moment. And of course, it's different to improvise for two minutes than it is for 50 minutes, which is what I do in recitals very often. So there's a, a very long arc. Um, possibilities with time improvs develop you know um, and so he, he called Dr. Lim and said I, I, I want to understand neurologic what happens in her mind please check her out and, and tell me if you're interested so Dr. Lim checked me out called back immediately and said okay you have to bring her now <laughs> so. you sound like you were made to be a lab rat <laughs> <laughs> my husband's still paying for it. No, but <laughs> no, but I. So I was taken to to Baltimore. Initially, the the study was going to be just half an hour of me in an MRI, you know, scan, with a 33 note little keyboard that was designed for these kinds of experiments, and I was stuck in this machine. I couldn't really move my head because I had a huge helmet on and um, and uh, the the study was designed to I was my own control which means that of course it's only one brain that they're looking at so he decided that it would be 
three settings, let's say. Me playing a Bach Minuet, which we chose ahead of time, which I knew since I was a child, so it was in my, in my far you know, memory, my long-term memory. Then I would improvise and I would play a scale, but I never knew which one I would be asked to do, so it was all very random. So I, I had a little earpiece which gave me instructions. It would say improvise, and after a minute, stop. And then it would say scale, stop, and like that, you know, back and forth. And what they want, it, this is going to be actually published in medical journals soon. It's it's you know it's being revised, but basically what what they saw is that the part of the brain that I use when I improvise is a different part of the brain than when I play repertoire. So it's literally like I have two brains. And they, there's, some, there's a neural pathway that is created somehow, and it's always been like that, um, to connect, to go from one to the other. And it's really fascinating because it's, it's like I, I'm a totally different person when I play Bach, Rahman, or Beethoven, and, I, and when I improvise. And it's what I call shutting down and getting out of the way. That's what I do. When I improvise, I allow something else to take over. And I just watch it happen. What is the emotional experience? <clears throat> I mean, I've seen, seen you in a recording earlier today <clears throat> where you took Can't Fight Feeling, which you <laughs> described, described as a coordinated <laughs> tune, uh, and we listened to it on a mobile phone. And mm. I think it's fair to say, well, I certainly sat there and thought, God, this is really actually quite a boring song. Really quite boring. Uh, and then when you improvised on it, uh-huh. then it came alive. Right. I'm wondering, and I felt an emotional rush as a result. I didn't film the emotional rush listening to it on Spotify, <laughs> but did in the studio. I can, I can get very emotional. In fact, for me, it's, it's like an emotional device. And I remember as a little girl, uh, not knowing that this was special or this was anything, you know, to write home about. It was just how I, I always sat at the piano, said hello. And I, if I had a fight with my brother or if I, you know, something happened and I was sad, I would sit down and I would improvise. And this has always been my, my most intimate uh, way of communicating who I am and, and it's also been an incredibly useful tool and powerful tool uh, to tell the stories of, of Venezuela and, and so improvisation is an inherently emotional process for me it's not an intellectual one it's a very complex intellectual thing that happens but for me it's an emotional trip completely. It's also, uh, it's also it strikes me one very immediate way of connecting with the audience yes. because it's almost like magic it's almost yes. like um, 
yeah, yeah. it's like it's like a festive magic show you know you're, you're you're giving them a subject and then you're running away with it and then as you improvise we're listening out for those familiar phrases so there's yeah. it's quite um it's quite flir- quite a flirtatious form yeah i mean you know it's funny because the word improvisation is not necessarily a very positive connotation because it can also mean kind of waffling around you know I think what I well I, I find variations are not that interesting what I do is I take a part of the theme and then that becomes the nugget for what is really a spontaneous composition let's say and sometimes it can be a fugue a six-minute fugue. Sometimes it sounds like a Ramayana Vetut that's nine minutes long. You know, these are longer improvs, and uh, they kind of they kind of weave and create themselves. The more I get into it, the more it elaborates. And I always say it's a bit like it's like it's it's a bit like having a row of domino, you know, chips or domino, you know. And you just push the first one, and they all fall. There's a cadence. They all fall after that. It's just the first note triggers everything else. And with the public, what they love is to see how a theme that they give me is transformed into something totally different. And sometimes it's quite funny, and I hear them all laughing. I, I get so much satisfaction of seeing their joy and seeing the musicians understand what's happening musically, but then the general public just thinking, wow, this really crappy Justin Bieber song became, you know, a seven-minute chorale, you know? So, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> I bet he doesn't Justin. know. <laughs> yes, he'd be so proud. you up uh, what 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 do I dislike yeah, hypocrisy right. um, opportunism um, just people not caring about other people just this kind of self-feeding self-serving uh, attitudes I hate that um, I, I I don't like emotional issues being used for political gain which I see all the time. Um, I, I don't like people being, uh, uh, when, you know, the, when people are not courteous, when people are not kind to each other, it really bothers me. Um, yeah, 
I ask because uh, when you talk about performing, uh, and because I'm completely obsessed by this idea that you can create something and then it will be lost, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Uh, that strikes that me as demanding a very sort of laid-back approach to music making yeah. and so I'm interested in trying to work out what's at the other extreme you know that's what is it that presses your buttons and yeah yeah that's that's interesting and I get that it's hypocrisy and, and self-servingness and, and all of that stuff well listen for detail really well you know what I I become a bit of a pit bull in 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 the whole human rights area because I've had to. And, you know, my mother is really funny because I was always quite shy as a girl. And I was, I'm not an extrovert. And uh, my mom, who is herself, you know, she's very quiet and she's a very, very sweet woman. Um, she'll hear one of my interviews, um, you know, on the radio, let's say, where I, I go full, full into the political situation because I feel I have to because I, we need voices, and, and I use mine. Um, and she'll, she'll say to me, uh, what happened to you? <laughs> because, you know, I've become, it's like I have this bone in my mouth and this, this, uh, this situation that I'm so passionate about. And, and what winds me up, you know what? What Venezuela has gone through, what it continues to go through. So I'm a very laid-back person, like my husband will say, I'm a very cool cat, you know. There are very few things that stress me out. I have low blood pressure, that also helps. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but... Well, no wonder you relaxed. Yeah, I, I am. I wouldn't... I don't think I... Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have survived everything if I wasn't. But there are certain things which really rile me up and which really bring out the, the warrior and definitely people. The mistreatment of people. Abuse of power, that when, just gets to me. Uh, thinking about your work as a human rights, mm -hmm. uh, human rights activist, mm -hmm. when can one know that one succeeded? When can one know that the work is done? There isn't an end. You just, you just have to use every tool that you have to tell the story, to, to raise awareness. And I, I am often talking about the role of the classical artists and getting involved in social conversations and in challenging the audiences and the status quo, you know, and I, I feel that we don't speak enough about all of these issues in the classical world. It's not like they do in the, in the rock and the punk and the, you know, visual arts and, and folk. I mean, that, those worlds are... Uh, they've always been connected, these artists, you know, the jazz, you know, Nina Simone, to what's happening socially around them. What do you think stops those other artists from getting more involved? I mean, I can't speak for them. I think everyone will have their reasons, but I just, I just want to entice them and inspire them to actually do something more with their voice than just be a great musician. You know, use your voice to talk about issues that need to be brought up and, and don't hide in the bubble of, of classical uh, you know I'm a classical artist I'm, I'm a human being that's, that's the only thing that matters really You've performed the Latin Concerto with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra in October. Yes, yes. I've done my research. Oh, I, look, I read yeah. the email um, <laughs> uh, and you're also playing with them on the 26th of February I am, yes. Have I got that one? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I haven't right. learned. <laughs> uh, and I think you're playing Mozart 24. And this week, playing, yeah. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Are you playing that this week? Yeah, yeah, uh, actually Wednesday and Thursday. Um, yeah. What is the experience of playing Mozart? Having spoken um, a great deal about improvisation, what, what's it like to shift back to something that's scored that well, is I, mixed? I improvise the cadenzas, they're always improvised. Um, I love Mozart. For me, I, I would have to say I probably consider Mozart to be the greatest of the greatest of all. And Bach. And Beethoven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, so one in the top three. <laughs> Definitely. Right. Um, um, well, my challenge, actually, is to stay within the score and not take off and improvise into a tangent. You know, I could totally do that. So my, my challenge is really to stick to what's there. Um, and Mozart, for me, is... I, I, I don't know, it just comes very naturally. The way, the way he writes, his, the, the way he tries to speak through, of course, the limited, let's say, language of the time and the, the rules that he had to abide to. Um, it's just very, very clear. And for me, Mozart is, is absolutely emotional and devastatingly beautiful and uh, giddy. But sometimes, yeah, but devastatingly always. There's always this, this minor feeling, even in his major works. And um, I love to play him. I, I am playing more and more Mozart, which probably comes to a, as a surprise to a lot of people because I'm a very big player, you know, Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff. But Mozart, is, it brings out a totally different, very intimate side of, of my sound and my approach. And I, I adore playing Mozart. Adore. And yes. Describe for me the sound of the Bournemouth mm. Symphony Orchestra. Well, first of all, I like them very much as people, which is, is always a good. That no, it, it, it is a nice, nice combination. Um, it's very homogenous, but in a, but in a, you know, they're a very cool, cool bunch. You know, they they have their own personality as well, which is a difficult balance to strike with an orchestra, of course. Um, well, they, well, at least with a Latin concerto, you know, which is a demanding piece, and it's not a piece that they have in their, in their memory because, you know, it's a new work. They really approached it with a lot of guts and a lot of um, hip-swaying, let's say, rhythmical uh, you know, um, verb, and they're very, they, they were so open to it, and they really, really gave everything they had, and uh, I really appreciated that. It was, it was a great, great experience. But then I'm sure now with Mozart, because we've played Ravel before, um, with Mozart, I'm sure it'll be all about the detail. You know, this is, this is, the Latin concerto is this huge work with tons of layers in it. Mozart is, you know, there's a, a simplicity in its complexity, of course, which I'm sure they'll do beautifully. And, uh, and it's actually one of my favorite concerti, the C minor, so I'm really looking forward to it. And when it comes to the cadenza, the conductor always says, well, what are you going to what do? do? What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> this dress rehearsal, there's no cadenza. So, well, uh, I'm just going to give you a trill. I'll give you two bars. Oh, the that's trill. A signal. That's a signal. Just, I, I can oh, promise okay. you a trill. 
possibly in the right key. Just listen for the trill. Just, <laughs> just the trill. The trill. <laughs> <laughs> that thought hadn't even crossed my mind. Is there anything yeah. else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? Oh, there's a lot. I don't know. I mean, um, depends depends which way you want to go. Um, you can have one thing. One. You can tell me one thing. Tell you one thing. You. Oh my God. It always boxes people. That's why I've asked. Well, um, I only ask so that I can have a swig of my coffee. It's all very well planned out. I see. Well, I mean. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I sometimes talk with my colleagues about how the public sees, you know, a performing artist on stage without having any clue as to how they got to that stage. What happened during the day? What happened the day before? What was the traveling like? Is your hotel okay? Have you slept enough? Have you eaten anything? You know, is there something going on at home? You know, if you're a mom, of course, you've always got, or, or a dad, you've got the, 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 the kids always there. Um, in the background somewhere, um, and I, I'm, I'm happy to see more and more artists on social media really kind of open up about uh, breaking that bubble of you know the artist is up there, the audience is somewhere around there, and there's no connection to um, to each other. And I, I like the way that barriers are being broken, and I think these younger generations of classical musicians are much more what's the word uh, w disposed to to really talk about themselves you know and talk about what inspires them what tortures them what they like about being a, a concert artist what they don't and I, I like that that kind of breaking of that glass ceiling and um, I just, I just hope more people talk about it, and I, I, I don't know. And I have to say, I've just discovered the iPad to maybe use during performances. Oh, really? Yes, okay. so I think that's, that's technology working for the concert artists, especially the concert pianists, who has to do everything by memory. So that's something oh. that everyone is kind of moving into, and that's, I find that really good. Give us a break. Uh, <laughs> do you speak Spanish? Of course. I mean, I just wanted to check. I didn't want to make <laughs> I wonder whether... So this, uh, at the end of this, yes. uh, I normally do introductions. Yeah. I wonder whether I might get you to say something in Spanish sure. for me. Of course. Um, uh, it's a phrase which is... Say in English first and mm. then translate it in Spanish. You know what's coming at me. Um, it's... You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Mm -hmm. So thoroughly I get good. You to say that in English. Do I have to say thoroughly good in English, I, or because oh, otherwise so how they look? Good in uh, well, obviously I want the phrase in English. I need the phrase in English. I could be really naughty and say something totally different, <laughs> and you would never exactly know. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yes. no. so I don't. But in the translation, I'd like to. I'd like to hear as near a translation as you can muster. Okay. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. So if we just do the English one first. You're listening to Thoroughly Good. You're listening to The Thoroughly Good. The classical, Thoroughly yeah. Classical Podcast, okay. Classical Music Podcast. Classical Music, okay. You're listening to The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Brilliant. And now it's back. Están escuchando el programa, el podcast de música clásica que se traduciría a muy buen musical classical podcast 
Realmente no hay una traducción <laughs> definida, pero es más o menos eso. I have absolutely no idea what you just said. And you see how, how much longer it took. Yeah. My God, you have a lot of words. Yeah. Really uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.